will be on page 49, session 6 of our series, the title of which is on the screen behind me, What's the World Coming To? Let me mention a few things that are coming up, and these are on the, or most of them are on the back cover of your notebook, but uh, just want to make you aware of some things that are happening. Uh, one week from this Wednesday is our first of two backyard fellowships for the summer. It'll be at 6.30 at the home of Larry and Wendy Mashinsky in New Boston. We have maps to their place at the Information Center, so you can pick those up if you've never been over there. And in the program today, it tells you what we ask you to bring. I think it tells you that on the back cover of your notebook as well. But mark that on your calendars one week from a Wednesday at uh, Larry and Wendy's place in New Boston. And then on the 17th, J- July 17th, is our next baptism. If you've never been baptized, it's something Jesus says that all of his followers are to do. And the word baptism is sometimes applied to things that are not the way the Bible describes baptism. Uh, many ha- are baptized when they are, when they are babies. That's not what the Bible describes as, as baptism. It's something that one uh, who has affirmed his or her faith in the Lord Jesus Christ does at, and personally does as an act of obedience to their Savior and Lord. So it's something you have to do, not something that can be done for you. And also, it needs to be done in such a way as to symbolize what baptism is supposed to represent, the death and the burial and the resurrection of Christ, which means when you get baptized, and all of those who were baptized in the Bible were, were immersed in water. So if that's never happened with you, it's something that needs to happen, but you need to be qualified to be baptized. And the qualification is that you have come to the Lord Jesus Christ, acknowledging Him as your Savior and Lord, and you want to follow Him with your life. So the next one of those is July 17th. See me before you leave today on the way out. Let me know you'd like to do that, and then we'll have an email exchange to set up a time for us to get together and discuss that very important matter. That's July 17th. And then going a little bit further, at the end of August, August the 26th, I don't know if this is on the back cover or not, but August the 26th is our annual Mud Hens game. So mark that. It's a Friday night. And we're going to have the tickets available at the Resource Center next week for you to buy for the the Mud Hens game. Page 49, Session 6. You see at the top the topic. Hell, the judgment to come. The topic is difficult. And I take absolutely no pleasure in speaking on this subject, none. In fact, uh, I don't speak on this topic except when we come across the topic in the text that we're considering in the series we go through during the worship hour or, as is the case today, when it comes up as part of our series. And often when we get together for these sessions during the Discovering God Hour, I'll inject a a bit of levity into what we do. There won't be any of that. It's just can't be done. If you understand the seriousness of the nature of this particular topic, and so it's a sobering thing indeed, one for which we need the Lord's help as we consider it. And so let's ask Him to, to help us. Father, we need Your help always at all times. And we need a measure of your grace now as well as we consider this very difficult topic of of hell and, and eternal punishment. 
Help us, Lord, to accurately convey what you have said in your word. And help us to come away with an understanding of why there is indeed a place called hell. Help us to understand what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us so that we may enjoy eternal life rather than eternal death. We pray today might be the day of the salvation of several here who will see that they are in desperate need of the Lord Jesus. And Lord, we ask that you will be honored in what we say today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Page 49. The idea of hell is a strange one to many people. It's one of the most universally troubling teachings of the Bible. People have a hard time reconciling the idea of hell with the kind of God that they perceive in their minds. Here's an exchange that Tim Keller has in his book, The Reason for God, on this issue of eternal punishment. I doubt the existence of a judgmental God who requires blood to pacify his wrath, said a frowning Hartmut, a graduate student from Germany. Someone had to die before the Christian God would pardon us, but why can't he just forgive? And then there's all those places in the Old Testament where God commands that people be slaughtered. And all of that's troubling, I agree, responded Josie, who worked for an art gallery in Soho. But I have, I have even more of a problem with the doctrine of hell. The only God that's believable to me is a God of love. The Bible's God is no more than a primitive deity who must be appeased with pain and suffering. We say in that next paragraph, perhaps you're like Josie, troubled with the very idea of hell as a punishment for sin. And you wonder how a God of love could bring such judgment on people. Now notice that word, such judgment on people. And perhaps underline that or circle it or, or otherwise highlight it. And the reason that it's worded that way, we wonder how God could bring such judgment. That is, how could God bring that kind of judgment or that severe a judgment? How could God do that in such a manner? Now, the reason I want you to highlight that is because the truth is none of us has a problem with justice in theory, including punishment for wrongdoers or criminals. But it's such judgment. It's this kind of judgment. In our minds, hell is simply too severe. So we don't have a problem with the idea of justice, including punishment for criminals and wrongdoers. I'm going to try to demonstrate that, but I think as a general proposition, you'd probably all accept that. You don't have a, a problem with that in the abstract, in theory, but then when we talk about this, such judgment, judgment like this, that is that severe, then we recoil. And the question then is this, who decides what is just, what is right in a particular instance? We all believe in the idea of justice. We all believe it's appropriate to punish wrongdoers and criminals. But we think this is just a bridge too far. This is just too much. Such judgment as eternal hell is beyond what we can comprehend. And since you believe it in the abstract, in general, 
then the question really is who determines? What is the appropriate punishment for a particular crime? Or to put it another way, what crime could possibly make eternal hell the appropriate punishment? And who determines that? We'll take a look down at the bottom of page 49, second from the last paragraph. As man became more and more resistant to God and more and more in love with himself, the transcendent moral order was seen as negotiable, as something that a community worked out for itself, then later as something each individual worked, worked out for himself or herself. When that transcendent moral order was done away with in human thinking, the idea of hell went right along with it, since there was no longer a reason for hell. Now, do you understand what's being said there? It's, folks used to believe in a transcendent, something above us, outside of us, moral order by which the universe was arranged. But once you abandon that and you believe that any moral order is a product of your own individual thinking or a product of something that was worked out by society, well, then the idea of hell is simply not going to be consistent with the moral order that we've, we've concocted. And yet, bottom of page 49, yet in each of us there's an innate desire to see justice done. We say things like, hell's not hot enough for people who rape children. Now, why do we say that? Because we recognize that there's something outside of human existence that rules certain things are to be out of bounds and deserving of great judgment. Now, let's spend a few minutes then to talk about that and try to explain that then further. I'm indebted to blogger Dan Phillips. Some of you are familiar with Pyromaniacs blog. Dan Phillips is one of the, the bloggers there. It's a, helpful, it's a helpful blog. And he shared some what I think are helpful and insightful thoughts with regard to this idea of justice and who decides what is the appropriate punishment for a particular crime. Or as I said earlier, put another way, what crime could possibly justify one spending eternity in a place of punishment called, called hell. Well, you have all heard, perhaps you have said something like this. You know, I work with some fine people who are Muslim or Jewish or agnostic, and I simply cannot believe they're going to hell just because they don't believe in Jesus. In fact, I can't reconcile the very idea of hell with the loving God. Now, if you haven't said that, you've probably heard that. I work with all kinds of great people. They're very nice people. They happen to be Jewish or Muslim or agnostic. And just because, just because of the crime of not believing in Jesus, I can't believe that God would consign them then to an eternal hell. Let's try to, let's try to tease that out a bit and see how it works and see what it's based on. Let's suppose that you and I were having a conversation about the American system of law and, and justice, and you were suggesting that, on the whole, the American system is a just system. But suppose I were to reply to you, you've said that if someone molests children sexually, he should go to jail for a long, long time. 
And then I said, you know, I can't buy into that. I work with some fine people who molest children. I can't believe they're going to jail just because they molest children. In fact, I can't reconcile the very idea of jail with a loving society. Now, do you see that we would all recoil from that immediately? Because the molestation, and, and when I use this as an illustration, please, please understand, I'm not making light at all. In fact, because it's so heinous, that's the very reason I'm using it. But we all know that instinctively, that that deserves a severe, a very severe judgment and punishment. And so if you're a decent person, you recoil in disgust at the very suggestion that because somebody has a number of other good qualities, we should let them slide simply because they molest children. And you quickly and you heatedly and you rightly respond. Well, if you think that, your idea of justice is really screwed up. And you see, friends, that's the problem that we have with hell is that our idea of justice is really screwed up. It's because we don't see the offense that God says results rightly and justly in eternal punishment. We don't see that offense the way God sees it. God tells us what his moral hierarchy is, and there is a moral hierarchy for God. God tells us how sins rank, God says, now hear this, that the pressing moral issue for all people in the entire universe is to love Him with all we are and all we have. That's the highest command. That's the highest imperative. And now hear this, therefore the highest crime is to refuse to love God as He deserves. And if our understanding of justice were not so screwed up, we would see that. We would see that, in fact, that child molesting is among the most horrible moral monstrosities that we can imagine, and we all are revulsed at it. But rejection of Christ is worse. Now, you're all sitting there thinking, really? It's worse to reject Christ? And the reason we're having to think about that is because we place more value, now hear this, we place more value on the horizontal plane than on the vertical. You see, we see more value in what's done by and to people more significance and more importance in what's done to people than what's done to God. And the only reason we see it that way is because, again, our sense of justice is messed up. If it were not for sin, then we would understand immediately that the highest crime in the universe would be to reject our Creator. And yet we don't think that way. If you were to have people sit down and list the most heinous crimes imaginable, they would all be things that people do to people. And virtually no one would list what people do to God. 
Now, let me continue to explain that because it's very important that we, that we understand this. Let's take a fellow. We'll just, call him, we'll just call him Guy. And Guy's a really good guy. He's honest, hardworking. He's a straight shooter. He gives to charity. And not just to formal charities. You've never seen Guy turn down a panhandler on the street. And he's devoted to his wife and his children. He's a regular church attender. He drives within the speed limit. He's always neatly dressed and clean. You hardly ever see him just sitting around. He's often out working in his yard or helping elderly neighbors work on their, their yards. So he's a good guy, right? But we just left out one thing. Guy has one uh, pastime. When the mood strikes, he molests small children. Now, is he still a good guy? He's got all of that down, but he has this one, he has this one thing. Now, I'm pretty sure that you would agree with me. You know, that's a deal killer. Noah, after all, he's not such, such a great guy. Now, let me ask you this. Can a person be rightly considered moral? if he does all the wonderful things that guy does, but just has this one little recurrent indulgence that he embraces and he practices involving little children. Now, you're going to say, rightly, no to that. Why can't we say that he's basically good, though? He does more good things than bad, doesn't he? But the truth of the matter is, none of that matters because we intuitively recognize a certain hierarchy in morality. Let's think of it another way. Replace the sin of molestation with a failure to signal when he makes a right turn. Ah, now we're all okay. He might be a decent fellow after all. On any moral hierarchy, failure to signal a right turn ranks well below the abomination of of child molestation because a child is infinitely more precious and valuable than a traffic regulation. Now let's stay with that a bit but just with uh, an alteration. Remove then child molestation and leave Guy with all of those virtues that we mentioned and add a bunch of others if you want but then just add this one specific thing about him. He does not hold Jesus as his Lord and Savior. What do you think now? Is he a moral guy now? And our answer to that question will tell us everything, everything about our moral hierarchy. And you see, Jesus was asked that question, wasn't he? What is the greatest commandment? And what did Jesus say? Matthew chapter 22, verses 36 to 40. Jesus answers the question this way, Love the Lord your God with all that you are. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now it's important that you get the hierarchy. <laughs> What's first? Jesus orders it 
that way on purpose. First and greatest, Jesus says, love the Lord your God. And second, on the horizontal plane, love your neighbor as yourself. And we've inverted that. We have made the highest command, loving people. But loving people, truly loving people, flows from loving God. You get the first one right and the second one follows. So much so that in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 14, Paul could say, love your neighbor sums up the law. Why? Because he assumes that in order to love your neighbor, you have to first love God. And so do you see, friends, that we, all of us, and myself included, are infected with this idea that the highest crimes are committed against people on the horizontal realm. But God says, no, the highest crime is committed against me. And if you think crimes against people deserve severe judgment, understand that the crime of failing to love me deserves the severest of all judgments. Once we get that straight, God is the center of his world, not man. Then when we think about justice and we think about punishment, ah, now we can see. God is indeed just in what he does with those who reject him. When I say reject him, please understand, it means reject the Lord Jesus Christ. Because I and the Father are one, said Jesus. Jesus is God. He is the Son of God. He is God the Son. And so we are commanded by God to obey Him, to love Him, to give ourselves for the purpose for which we've been made. And failure to do so is the highest crime in the universe. This This whole, you know, horizontal thing that we've all bought into to some extent is why you see now is one of the high crimes that you can commit in our culture is to be dissed by somebody. I mean, you know, sports, sports people go crazy when they get dissed. It didn't show me respect. Do you see why that's such a high crime? Because we think we're so valuable. Dissing me is a really high crime because I am really valuable. Dissing God is the highest crime because God is the most valuable. Now take a look, if you will, then, at page 50. With that, what is hell? It is a place of eternal and conscious punishment of the wicked as a just retribution for their rebellion against God. It's a place where God brings about his justice for people's sins, all of which flow from a failure to love God supremely. There are a number of descriptions of hell given in Scripture, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Those are listed for you. And then at the bottom of page 50, the Bible gives us a description, a a very awful description, a very scary description of what hell is like. 
On the next couple of pages, those characteristics of hell are listed. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on those, but we'll just bounce through them. That It's a place of, says Jesus, unquenchable fire. It's a place where there is memory, and because of the memory, there is remorse. On page 51, it's a place where one is still physically conscious. It's filled with misery and pain as the undiluted wrath of God is poured out. It's a place of eternal existence. Everyone will live forever in one of two places, in heaven or in hell. It is a place of eternal separation from God. Last week we saw that death in the Bible is separation. Physical death is the separation of the spirit from the body. Spiritual death is the separation of the individual from God. And eternal death is the separation of the individual from God forever. And that will be the case in hell. And therefore, with all of that, it is a place to be avoided at all costs. It is where the wicked go, page 52 And because we have rejected God, all of us have sinned. Not are just, we sin because we are sinners. And we actually have deeds that are commensurate then with our nature. And those will be judged at the final judgment of the wicked. So how can a God of love send people then to hell? This awful place. We've already discussed then that it is just if... You understand that the highest crime is not committed on the horizontal plane, but rather vertically against, against God. But nonetheless, it's a common question, middle of page 52, that people bring up as an objection to the doctrine of hell. In fact, it spawned the teaching of annihilationism. It's the idea that people do not go to hell, they actually just cease to exist. They're annihilated. But it has no basis in Scripture. So how can a God of love send people to hell? Here are three answers to that. First, God who is love is also God who is holy. And God's holiness demands, demands a penalty for sin. So in answer to the question that the German student asked on page 49, why can't God just forgive? It's because of God's nature, His holy nature, that a payment for sin, a penalty for sin, is required by God. And so God is not just loving, God is, God is holy, and that holiness requ- requires a payment, a penalty. But second, page 53, God who is love sent His Son Jesus to pay the penalty so that hell can be avoided. And so this God is holy, but yes, this God is love, and He demonstrates His love in this, Romans chapter 5 and verse 8, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ paid that penalty. The most famous verse in Scripture, God so loved the world we have for you on page 53, He gave His only begotten Son. Whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. He who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Do you notice now, the person is by default, by nature, 
They have the wrath, the anger of God abiding upon him or her. And what changes that is Jesus, the Son, because he took the penalty. And the wrath of God, as we'll see when we close, was poured out upon him. And then thirdly, we can understand the depth of God's love only by seeing the reality and the seriousness of hell. A God, now follow this, a God who kills his son merely to save someone from annihilation is hardly a God of love. He's a cruel and unjust God. Only if hell is real and eternal does the death of Jesus make any sense. You see, Jesus, God the Son, came, became man to take this, the wrath of a holy God upon himself so that this eternal punishment would not need to be borne by you and by me. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this in the middle of page 53, Suppose that someone said they had paid one of your bills. Would you be joyful? Probably. But the size of your joy would depend on the size of the bill. If if they had paid your telephone bill, you'd be thankful, but not nearly so thankful as you would be if they paid your mortgage. Jesus paid the penalty of eternal punishment, because that is what is consistent with the holiness of God. So who goes there? Who goes to hell? At the bottom of page 53, many people have no problem believing somebody like Hitler goes to hell. We recognize the heinousness of, of his actions. We recognize that justice for him must be served. But most of us don't see ourselves as Hitler. Now again, why don't we see ourselves that way? Because what Hitler did was on the horizontal plane. But God says, I see it another way. Yes, that's horrible indeed. But he did that because he had first rejected me. And everyone who rejects me is guilty of cosmic treason before God. And that's why Romans 3 says, as we have for you there, it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. All have turned aside, together have become useless. No one who does good, not even one. Now, Paul, who wrote that, is not saying no one does any relative good, any civic good, any cultural good. A philanthropist, the word literally means lover of mankind. A philanthropist who gives his money for the benefit of other people has done a good thing, and I'm very glad when that happens. But ultimately, because it's not about the horizontal plane, but rather vertical, man to God and God to man, God's verdict is there is no one who does that naturally. Or to put it another way, people very often do good things, but they never do them for the right reason outside of Christ. And all, therefore, have sinned, Romans 3 and verse 23, by falling short of the standard, the character, the glory of God. And because, bottom of page 53, of the fact of universal sin, the Bible speaks of universal judgment. Those who do not obey the Son of God will have the wrath of God on them. And that wrath is eternal hell. To obey the Son is to trust in Him alone for salvation from sin as God has commanded us to do. 
John 3.36 again. We had it a couple of pages earlier. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. The Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. And notice what the last book of your Bible, the book of Revelation, says about those who will be in hell. For the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. This means that all mankind is naturally in a state of judgment, deserving hell because of sin. Now, some argue that hell's unfair punishment for sins committed in this life and such a punishment is inconsistent with who God is. But note this argument assumes two things. It assumes that one has a proper understanding of who God is, and we do not, most of us. And it assumes that one understands the nature and extent of a person's sinfulness. When we understand who God is as the holy and righteous creator and ruler of the universe, we understand that sin against him is infinitely serious and can be justly punished only by eternal punishment in hell. Jonathan Edwards said this, It's a most unreasonable thing to suppose that there should be no future punishment. To suppose that God, who had made man a rational creature able to know his duty and sensible that he is deserving punishment when he does it not, should let man alone and let him live as he will and never punish him for his sins and never make any difference between the good and the bad, that he should make the world of mankind and then let it alone and let men live all their days in wickedness, in adultery, murder, robbery and persecution and the like and suffer them to live in prosperity and never punish them, that he should suffer them to prosper in the world far beyond many good men and never punish them hereafter. How unreasonable it is to suppose that he who made the world should leave things in such confusion and never take any care of the government of his creatures and that he should never judge his reasonable creatures. Now, a few remaining questions. Bottom of that page, what about people who have never heard. People are going to go to hell just because they've rejected Jesus. Now, I've stated that the way it's popularly phrased. I don't state it that way. Just because you rejected Jesus. As if that's not that big a deal. <laughs> that's the biggest deal. But what about somebody who's never heard about Jesus? How can they be guilty then of rejecting him? Bottom of page 54, another common objection to hell is made about those who've never heard the message of salvation through Jesus Christ. Surely it would be unfair for God to send them to hell since they never had the chance to respond. Two answers to that. The first answer is this. You're not in the I never heard category. Okay? So, like, you're here. So even if there, even if there were people who've never heard, you're not one of them. So it's actually not going to help you. Uh, but secondly, notice the next paragraph. There actually is no such person. Romans chapter 1 uh, teaches that all people, by virtue of having been made by God, 
know God. And as a matter of fact, Romans chapter 1 says, since they knew, and then literally the Greek says, since they knew the God. It actually has the article there. Since they knew the God. But they glorified him not as God. Have rejected the light that God has given to all people, Romans chapter 1, in creation itself, Romans chapter 2, in the conscience that God has given to all people. And the Bible tells us that in verse 18, Romans chapter 1 and verse 18, here is what all people do with that information that God has given. They all, the Bible's word is suppress it. Hold it down. They have it. In fact, you can't suppress it unless you have it. They have it, but they suppress it. And so no one goes to hell for what they did not know. God says all men know and all men reject. And if that person in that state is to hear the name of Jesus without a move of God upon their heart in their natural state, they will reject Jesus. And so there's no such thing, in effect, as someone who has, has never heard. And then lastly and importantly, how can someone then avoid hell? The only way to avoid the judgment of hell is through the salvation. And notice that word, salvation. We use it, it's a churchy word, but we don't think about what it means. Salvation, saved, means to be delivered. It means to be rescued. It means to be delivered from, yes, sin, but it means to be delivered from the penalty of sin. It means not just to be delivered from something, but to be delivered from someone. To be delivered and rescued from the just wrath of a holy God. When we say salvation or, hey, are you saved? I'm saved. That's what we're talking about. I've been rescued, I've been delivered from my sin, from the, from the penalty of that sin, but ultimately from the wrath of God. Romans chapter 2 and verse 5, Romans 2 and verse 5, says that those who do not believe are, quote, storing up wrath for themselves. Wrath that will be poured out by this holy God. And so how can someone avoid hell? The only way to avoid the judgment of hell is through the deliverance, the rescue, the saving that is in Jesus Christ alone. John 3.16 is packed with truth, telling us that all must believe. God loved the world this way. God so loved the world. It's not, it's not that God loved the world so much. I mean, He did love the world so much. But the word so means in this manner, in this way. Like so, God loved the world that he gave. That God came to earth as man to do for you what you could not do for yourself. He gave his only begotten son, God the one and only, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, no hell, but have eternal life. Now, the best motivation for coming to the Lord Jesus Christ is not to simply avoid hell. Because you remember what the highest crime is? It's failure to love the Lord your God. 
And so see, friend, the reason that today you should come to God through Jesus Christ is because you recognize that you have committed cosmic treason, the highest crime against him, by failing to love him, honor him, devote yourself to him, give yourself to him. You were made by him for him. And if you recognize that now, this morning, he will rescue you. He will save you. He will deliver you. And that salvation is available then to you in what Jesus Christ has done for you, taking the punishment that you deserve and that I deserve upon himself on the cross. And God the Father poured out all of his fury at sin on Jesus. Every last bit of it was poured out on him. So that every sin you have ever committed or ever will commit, do you all get that? Not only that you've ever committed, but ever will commit past, present, and future, thanks be to God, is covered by the blood of Jesus because the wrath of God was absorbed by Him. The only one who could do it in that one infinite and awful act of dying on our behalf and being forsaken by God the Father in that God-forsaken moment but he did that for you. And he offers that to you. And if you reject that, you will pay for your sin yourself. And so finally, at the bottom of page 55, the Bible talks about the day of judgment that God has appointed. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. He has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him, that is Jesus, from the dead. And so in the face of this, the only right response is repentance towards God and faith in Christ for salvation. I mentioned the word salvation so that we know what it is. Let's make sure we know what repentance is. Repentance means to change one's mind to change one's mind about who we are, about who God is, about our sin. So you came into this room thinking that crimes against people were more heinous than crimes against God. I hope you've changed your mind. You repent. You've changed your mind about your sin. It's much, much, much worse than you thought. And so you repent. You change your mind about that. And it is a change of mind that leads to a change of life and it causes me now to embrace the only answer to that sin about which my mind has been changed. God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible promises forgiveness for sin and eternal life for all who will come to Jesus Christ. You must recognize your sinfulness before God. Realize you're far worse than you ever dared to imagine. The good news is because... There, the, and, and that is the good news because there is hope only when you realize how bad you really are. And then you recognize Jesus came into the world, took human flesh to die in your place and purchase salvation for those who turn to him in faith and repentance for deliverance, rescue, salvation. Even though you're far worse than you ever dared to imagine, you're far more loved and accepted in Christ than you ever dared to hope. God, through Christ, took the step to fix the sin problem. 
And now he calls on all men everywhere to repent. Now, Christian friend who has repented, we're going to bow, and as we do, let's thank God for Jesus. Thank God for rescue. Thank God for salvation. Thank God for his love. Thank God for our acceptance in the beloved in Jesus. Thank God that he gives us the privilege of of sharing this good news message because the bad news is so dark and so stark. And he says, you're my ambassadors, as though God is making his very appeal through us. He gives us that privilege. It's the only message whereby people can be delivered, saved, rescued. Let's thank God for that. And to the person who came in here and you thought it was more about people than about God, I trust you're repenting, changing your mind, and seeing your need now of the Savior and turning to him in repentance and belief, believing who he is and what he's done. When we bow and pray, there is no magic formula for you. This is what you do. You acknowledge who you are to God. God, I am a hopeless and helpless sinner. And I believe Jesus Christ is my Savior, the one who saves me. I ask you to deliver me, forgive me. He who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's bow together. Father, this is a very sober moment for us in so many ways as we think about the consequences of sin. Lord, my view of what is right and what is wrong is is skewed because of my sin. And I tend to think, and we certainly tend to think, that crimes against humanity are the worst crimes that can be committed. But the worst crime of all is committed against you. And we have all committed that cosmic treason that deserves execution, eternal punishment. It is an infinite offense deserving of an eternal punishment. And so, Lord, I am sobered by who I am. I'm sobered by the way it skews the way I see your world and I see myself and I see the need for your forgiveness. But I'm also thankful, profoundly thankful, for the Lord Jesus Christ, that God indeed loved in this way, that he gave God the Son to do for me and to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. We thank you for the Lord Jesus and his death upon the cross and the infinite value of it and the acceptance of that sacrifice before a holy God the Father pouring out the wrath that I deserved and we deserved upon Jesus so that we can bask in your love and your grace and your mercy and have eternal life rather than eternal death. Thank you for the difference that it's made will not only will make, but is making in our lives. Thank you for the privilege of giving this good news message to a lost and dying and desperate world. And Lord, I pray for those who came into this room with an understanding of sin that did not take it as seriously as you do. And because they didn't take it as seriously as you do, they did not see their need for the Savior. I pray that they are repenting that you have moved upon their minds, upon their hearts, to change their view of themselves, of you and their sin and its consequences, that they are reaching out right now to you. Draw men and women to yourself for your glory, we pray. 
And we will give you the honor and the praise for the change you make in them as you work it out of them then in new life in Christ. Go with us this week as we ponder these things. But help us, Lord, to rejoice in that we belong to the beloved. And thank you for your grace and your mercy. We ask for your hand of safety upon us and that you bring us back next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.